6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Isaiah with a session titled, The Physics of Immortality. I thought we'd do a special study tonight because we're coming up on the Easter season. And of course, the minute uh, I think of Easter, I immediately think of Jurassic Park. Why, sure, you didn't know you are going to have dinosaur eggs for Easter this year, did you? But we're going to talk a little bit about dinosaurs, because it has a great deal to do with one of the problems that, whether we admit it or not, bother us. How many of you enjoyed either reading the creative novel by Michael Crichton called Jurassic Park or saw the movie? How many of you saw that? Okay, how many of you realize the implications it has for the resurrection? Huh? Oh, good, okay, all right. Provocative entertainment, but very provocative to a biblically sensitive observer. What makes that, of course, the whole theory behind his colorful story, of course, is that these creatures could be cloned or created, if you will, or recreated from simply a segment of DNA that was captured, in this case, in the case of the story, by a prehistoric mosquito, which in turn was encapsulated in amber. By getting the blood from the mosquito, they could reconstruct the DNA of the dinosaur and thus create these monsters, which, of course, gave the, the color to the movie, if you recall the basic premise. What makes this a little interesting is that in Beijing, a few weeks ago, Beijing University scientists have obtained some gene fragments from DNA of fossilized dinosaur eggs in China's Henan province. They found 305 nearly intact dinosaur eggs uh, and about 20,000 shell pieces in as many as 24 nests. So they actually have now some dinosaur DNA. In Utah, about a year ago, you may recall, the Brigham Young University uh, announced that they have isolated a bit of dinosaur DNA from some bony remains in an 1,800-foot deep coal mine near Provo, Utah. And uh, the genetic material matches no... Uh, um, mammal, bird, or reptile, they believe it's dinosaur, it might be some other prehistoric game. There, there's some debate, there's scholastic debate about that. Now, the discovery in Utah was just a small uh, fragment of one gene, and um, the lead bio microbiologist of the team said he has no plan to follow the plot of Jurassic Park and try to clone any animals from it, so I think we can relax about that. But the very idea as we see dramatized by these complex giant creatures being cloned from a DNA, should be extremely provocative to a biblically sensitive observer. You see, we want to talk a little bit about the biomedical revolution that's going on on our frontier right now. The famous double helix, the DNA molecule, which was discovered in 1952, is actually a molecular code, a, like a ladder, that is about three billion rungs long. The human body contains about 100 trillion cells, but each one has a nucleus, which contains 23 pairs, 46 in all, of chromosomes. Each in each pair of chromosomes, one came, came from each of the two parents. 
Which is kind of interesting because Genesis tells us that the two, when you get married, become one flesh. It very literally happens. Now, the segments of the chromosomes, called genes, are like sentences. They're composed of three-letter words spelled in a four-letter alphabet. In other words, a three-out-of-four code uh, makes up these words from a molecular alphabet uh, called nucleotides, adene, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. The DNA molecule is it's kind of interesting, by the way, that same code that's used in our DNA is used in all life. A worm, a rat, a, a dog, a cat, all are used in the same alphabets, but same code. Which proves, of course, that they all came from the same designer. But there's something else, just incidentally, I can't resist pointing out. I got a letter from an expert that pointed out something to me. At the cellular level, the human immune system uh, attempts to um, recognize and reject anything that's non-human, any foreign material. That's why we have problems with transplants and things. On virtually every nucleated cell in a the person, there are small markers to distinguish them as being human. And they're called antigens. There's a particular one called the human-like leukocyte antigen, HLA. And these uh, certain antigens are the same in every human, but they're only, and they're only found in humans, although many individuals may have different combinations of these. In fact, that's how you d develop blood types and things, by slight variations here. What is the number, biblically, of man? Six, good. It's interesting that these markers that uniquely identify a cell being human is that these markers are in chromosome, guess what? Number six. I think that's kind of interesting. I couldn't be just throwing that in. But where I really had it is, all of us have pondered, how can God resurrect our bodies? We talk glibly in the Bible about the resurrection of the dead. I'm not talking about raising the dead like Lazarus, because he subsequently died. I'm talking about the resurrection, the fact that we will receive our bodies. The very idea that an ancient animal from the prehistoric period can be uh, uh, recreated from a piece of information in the DNA code gives us a clue, maybe, to at least some possible technology for immortality uh, in the resurrection. See, the individual atoms that make up our bodies are made from basically about 17 elements that are in the dust of the ground. If you take the elements you find in the ground, you'll come up with a list of about 17. Those are the same 17 elements that make us up. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and so forth. You know, you can make a list. Now, it's interesting that uh, we know that now from our modern chemistry. I don't know how Moses figured it out way back then when he said we were from of the dust of the ground. But in any case, where do our bodies come from? See, the specific atoms that make you up, your tissues, your body, of course, when you die and you're buried, of course, decompose. How can God reconstruct that? Because those atoms are then cycled into other natural things, right? Or to put the other conundrum that is commonly uh, mentioned in college campuses, so what happens when a cannibal eats a missionary? And then another cannibal eats the cannibal. I mean, how are you going to resurrect those bodies? See, the concept, what they fail to, what Waldus failed to recognize is that atoms are fungible. Uh, setting aside isotope issues, that an oxygen atom is an oxygen atom, a carbon atom is a carbon atom, essentially. So that's simply the alphabet of which we're made. Now, if God wanted to resurrect us using the same physical technology that we presently enjoy, all he has to do is pick up some other oxygen. You know, in other words, the, the, the atoms he can choose can, are fungible. 
if they're, they're alike. So it's not the specific atoms, it's the issue, it's how they're organized in the molecules, how those molecules are organized in the tissues, how those tissues are organized in the organs, etc. So it's basically information. Turns out, all the information you need to create a dinosaur is contained in a DNA molecule. All God needs to do to, to, to resurrect you is to have your genetic history, and maybe a little more, as embodied presently in every cell in your body. Now, before we go any further in this, there's a little more uh, uh, technical background I'd like to touch on, and that is uh, some misconceptions that we all are victims of as far as physics is concerned. Most of us, unless you've had some college training, uh, continue to be victims of some misconceptions of physical concepts. Uh, most of us assume that time is linear and absolute. We think that an hour from now is the same as an hour past. I mean, we just think uh, tomorrow will be like yesterday, especially as far as the dimension of time is concerned. And this gets reinforced when we're in school. Most of us have seen our teacher, or maybe had to do it ourselves, go up to the blackboard and do a timeline. We drew a line on the blackboard from the left end. We draw a line to the right. The left end is the beginning of something, the birth of a person or of a nation or so, some such thing. The right end of the line is the termination, death or end of a nation or a person, what have you. How many of you made timelines when you were in school? How many of you went to school? I'm sorry. Okay. All right. See, because of that concept, when we encounter the concept of eternity, we tend to presume that what we mean is a line that starts at infinity on the left and continues to infinity on the right. When we encounter the concept of God, we tend to imagine someone who simply has lots of time, an unlimited amount of time. That turns out to be bad physics. And let me try to demonstrate what I mean by that. Most of you, when you're in school, dealt, dealt with triangles. And you took the angles in a triangle. If you add up the angles in a triangle, it adds up to how much? 180 degrees, exactly. In a right triangle, it's 90, 45, 45, or 90, 30, 60, whatever. But if you add up the angles in a triangle, it always adds up to 180 degrees. Now, if you went outside with a transit and surveyed a very large triangle and added up all your calculations and discovered that it didn't add up to 180, but rather add up to, say, 200 degrees, what does that mean? I say, well, gee, maybe I made a mistake. No, you check it, you did right, and yet you've got a triangle out there that's more than 180 degrees. What have you encountered? The curvature of the Earth. You see, we're taught plane geometry. The 180-degree rule that we've all learned deals with a two-dimensional plane, plane geometry. But when you go into three dimensions, like a globe, call it a sphere, um, you can have a triangle on the face of the earth that has uh, 90 degrees in each corner. You see, what we, what, what the assumptions we make from plane geometry don't fit in three-dimensional geometry, solid geometry. That was the insight that Dr. Einstein had many years ago as he pondered the issues of space and time. He realized that we don't live in three dimensions, we live in more than that. And he realized there's at least one more, the fourth dimension, called time. What that means, by the way, and that's why I'm bringing it up, is time is a physical property. 
You think we think of length, width, height as three dimensions. There's a fourth dimension called time. If you're sophisticated, you never speak of space or time separately. You always speak of space-time. See, time changes. We can measurably change. Time changes with mass, acceleration, or gravity. If I had an atomic clock here on the platform, and then I moved it up one meter, it would speed up one part in 10 to the 16th, just a little bit, but measurably, predictably. If I move it up 100 meters, it, mo it speeds up by 10 to the 14th. Not enough to alter your personal schedules. But it's interesting that time itself is measurably a physical property. Back in 1971, the United States Naval Observatory put an atomic clock in an aircraft and sent it around the world eastward, compared to a clock left at rest on uh, where they left. The, the, the eastward clock lost 0.06 microseconds on its journey. A similar clock on a plane going westward around the world gained 0.27 microseconds. In each case, a small amount, but what's important, exactly the amount that would have been that was predicted by Einstein's theory of relativity. If you read a textbook in this area, they'll usually dramatize what they call the dilation of time by another example. They take a hypothetical a, a pair of astronauts, two twins born at the same instant, leave one here on the Earth, the other one we're going to put in a spaceship, and we're going to send it to the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, which is about four and a half light years away. We're going to send him there and back at about half the speed of light. When he returns from this mission, he will be more than two years younger than his twin brother. And that's used as an example to get across the idea that time is relative, it's affected by your physical uh, situation. Now, see, God is not subject to time. Is God subject to mass? Is God uh, subject to gravity? Hardly. So God is not somebody who has lots of time. God is somebody who is outside the domain of time altogether. That's what uh, Isaiah means when he speaks of God as he that inhabiteth eternity. And that's what uh, God means when he says, I alone know the end from the beginning. He's outside time and he demonstrates, he authenticates his word by describing history in advance. That's why he proves to us that it's his word and not a contrivance or a fraud. Now, it's in that vein I want to now shift a little bit from physics to um, uh, some experience we've all had. How many of you have had a hands-on experience with a computer? Isn't that in itself amazing? Virtually everybody here. So, uh, you know what this is. You've encountered one of these things, a diskette, a little three-and-a-half-inch diskette. If, if I take a blank diskette and put it on a sensitive scale, It'll weigh about seven-tenths of an ounce. Okay. If I take the same diskette, and I spend hundreds of dollars and load it with over a million bytes of software, and put it on that scale, what will it weigh? Same thing. You see, software has no mass. Its embodiment at any instant might have mass. But I can send that same software through the airwaves. Right? See, the real you is software, not hardware. To continue another example, if I had a computer up here on the platform, and if you knew every circuit, every technology, every recording head, every magnetic and, and uh, transistor, microcircuit, all, all the technologies involved, could you predict the behavior of that computer? 
No, because you need to know what software is. The analogy is if you knew all the circuits in your TV set, you don't know what program's playing. The computer's a better analogy because it's an infinite state machine, and so are you. See, the thing is, the real you is software, not hardware. It is temporarily resident in hardware we call a body. That has a very profound implication. You see, this software on this disk has no mass. Its embodiment in any one instant has mass. That means the software has no time domain. That means you, sitting out there, also are independent of any dimension of time. Your physical body is in the time domain. It's physical. But the real you is not physical. The real you, call it soul, spirit, whatever, is software, not hardware. It has no time. The real you is eternal, whether you're saved or not. The question is, where will you spend that eternity? Now, I had an interesting experience that I love to make reference to. I, I travel a lot, and I obviously have to write a lot, so I'm very dependent upon a portable computer, a laptop. And I had a, uh, a, a classic laptop for many, many years that finally died. I mean, it finally didn't boot up. Had it in the shop, I think, three different times. It was just finally, uh, it gave up the, the years of abuse that it was subject to. And some dear friends, uh, supporters of his ministry, at recognizing uh, my dilemma uh, and uh, my dependence on such a tool, were gracious enough to treat me to a top-of-the-line laptop uh, some months ago. It was an interesting experience because I unwrapped this brand-new uh, laptop. I took my software, collected over almost 20 years of, of teaching and tools that I use and all that sort of thing, and loaded it in this new computer. And although it worked in recognizable fashion, it was very different. First of all, it worked much faster. It was in color. There were features and things that uh, I never could do before because of the environment it was in. Same software, new hardware. Every time I use that, I'm reminded that you and I are heading for an upgrade. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Frank J. Tipler. He's professor of mathematical physics at Tulane University. If you've taken an advanced course in semiconductors at, at, at the graduate level, you may have used one of his textbooks. He's a very well-known expert, but a specialist primarily in the area of global relativity. It's a rarefied branch of physics that's populated by people like Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose and people of that caliber. He's in that league. He uh, took upon himself to try to devise an unusual mathematical model. Most cosmologists deal with what they know about physics from what they, can, they call the Big Bang to the present day. They also, the same physicists, will talk about the ultimate heat death of the universe. The universe eventually will burn out, and they, whether it's millions away, whenever it is, but it's a long way away. He decided that no one had really attacked trying to put a composite model together from the Big Bang to the end. So he decided to undertake that. That requires great expertise in, uh, in mathematics, in uh, not only global relativity, but also particle physics and also information sciences. It happens that Tipler is quite skilled in all of those areas. Well, as he started to pull this together, here's a guy who's a professed atheist. As he undertook this composite model, he made two discoveries. 
The first one, using the most advanced, sophisticated methods of modern physics and relying on the rigorous techniques of, uh, and procedures of logic that science demands, he discovered what he regards as a proof of the existence of God. Now, most of us in this audience say, well, gee, no kidding. What has he discovered? You know, but that's, from his approach, that's, not, that's a non-trivial, interesting thing to see happen. But secondly, this one may surprise you. He also has discovered, from the laws of physics and mathematics alone, he's concluded that every human being that's ever been walked on the earth is destined for a resurrection. And that may surprise you. He's published a book called The Physics of Immortality. And he believes, he, or he claims that he arrived at these conclusions this, about God and immortality in exactly the same way that physicists calculate the properties of an electron. He believes that the central claims of Judeo-Christian theology are in fact true, and that these uh, uh, claims are straightforward deductions from the laws of physics as we now understand them. Now, I don't misunderstand. I'm not going to. I'm not suggesting you run out and buy his book. There's a lot of it that I wouldn't agree with, and uh, you have to have a real appetite for differential equations, etc., if you want to enjoy that. But I do think that these conclusions from a professed atheist are rather interesting. If you're interested in this area, you can learn a lot more from simply reading the most important chapter of the Bible. Now, what is the most important chapter of the Bible? There are many candidates, but I think one can easily support 1 Corinthians 15 as such a chapter. It's the centerpiece of Christianity, and it faces the ultimate enemy of mankind, death. So I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. We won't have the time to go through it thoroughly. I hope I can whet your appetite enough that you'll commit yourself to making a serious study of the chapter. We have a commentary on, on uh, 1 Corinthians that uh, I encourage you to explore if, if I can simulate interest here. But the next question I want to ask you that relates to all of this, if, if, how many of you have heard the term the gospel? Excuse me? That's pretty good. That's about 80%. That's not bad. You all heard the term gospel. What is the gospel? Good news, great. What does that mean? What is the gospel? The answer happens to be in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul defines the gospel. And it may shock you to realize that this is not to be taken for granted. It may shock you to realize that there are major denominations on the planet Earth, Christian, call themselves Christian, that deny these verses. I don't want to get into that kind of controversy here. Just be sensitive to the fact that what we're dealing with here is not obvious and yet fundamental. Without this, we have no redemption. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, Paul saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and which ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. One disturbing thing so far is that you can't believe in vain. Ooh, you want to investigate what that means, but let's move on. Paul continues, verse 3, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, that... Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Period. He goes on to some of the things we'll come to. You know what's interesting about this is what Paul did not mention. He never made reference to the Lord's teachings. Didn't make reference to his miracles. He didn't make reference to his example. Now, there's good lessons in all of those. 
It's all very important, but they're not what Paul is calling the gospel. What is the gospel? These three elements. One, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures. First of all, that he died. He didn't just disappear. The 12th Imam of Islam disappeared, occulted as they say. They're expecting him to come back. That's their deliverer that there's an expectancy for. No, Christ died. He didn't just die. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He died fulfilling a very specific procedure outlined in the Torah for the remission of sins. He died for you and I. It's staggering to go across the country and inventory different groups and cults and, and denominations that claim that they're Christians, but that deny that Christ died once and for all completely for our sins according to the scriptures. Colonel idea, key idea. Second thing, that he was buried. It's interesting that only Paul emphasizes this. And he later in the chapter links this to baptism in which we partake of an identification with that, where we are buried and then brought up again. He was buried. It's interesting how the authorities of that day made sure that his death was undeniable. And further, they uh, outwitted themselves because they took so many precautions to make sure that Jesus was dead and remained in the grave that they thus documented the miracle for us. His burial. There's a pattern here we talk about in baptism, but it's something we might just remind ourselves as we explore this. If you're in Jesus Christ, if you've been truly baptized in Jesus Christ, something in you must die. Nothing can be resurrected that hasn't died. Think about that. And then, of course, the third element of the three he was raised. It's interesting, as they promoted the story that his body was stolen, they're documenting, in fact, that the grave was empty. There's an empty tomb. You can go visit it um, when you're in Israel. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.